Good morning, Grace Covenant Church. My name is Andrew Woods, and I serve as the associate pastor and one of the elders here. And it is my great pleasure to be before you this morning to bring the word of the Lord. So if you would, open in your Bibles to Psalm 36. Psalm 36 is where we will be spending the majority of our time this morning. And as you're opening your Bibles and getting there, I want to draw your attention to something that you might not be uh, as focused on during the pandemic that we're in. And that is uh, another pandemic that has been raging for a much longer time. Uh, I was reading uh, this week during my study the San Francisco Chronicle, of all things. And uh, the San Francisco Chronicle was talking about this pandemic of a certain drug that is just ripping through the neighborhoods of San Francisco. And uh, through my previous employment as a police officer, I can attest that it's ripping through the cities of Los Angeles as well and pretty much nationwide. But what they were talking about was this new drug that's called fentanyl. And I'm sure you guys may have heard it or have read about it, but it is an opiate drug uh, that acts a lot like heroin. And I'm not here to give you a drug lesson this morning, but the reason why I'm talking about it was just as they were describing all of these different people's stories about how they came to uh, find out about this drug and what had happened, there was this curiosity that people had to go and try to find this thing that would bring them some sort of delight. It would help them escape. And what they found very quickly when they started using this, and again, I've interviewed hundreds of these people over thousands of hours, that is not an overstatement, of narcotics users. And what you find is that when they start using this, as they, they look this one time for delight, it ends up destroying their whole life and that their entire life now becomes focused on this one thing. And that's what this article said. It had multiple people and their families who were trying to help them get them off the street because of this drug that had taken control over their life. It started with this curiosity and then it went into using it and then their whole life became, I must use this and everything else revolves around it. This morning, I think David is going to help us see in Psalm 36 something very similar to what we're seeing from this pandemic. And no, it might not be drugs uh, back then uh, in his time, but it is certainly sin. Read along with me in Psalm 36. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. 
In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Hear the word of God. This morning, what we're going to see in Psalm 36 is almost like a reversal of Psalm 31, or Psalm not 31, but 1. If you go back, and and as you'll see, we've been kind of referencing back to Psalm 1 again and again, and there's good reason. A lot of these Psalms are connected, and Psalm 1 being the first one, right? And so we see in Psalm 36 a reversal of order. Instead of being uh, beginning with the blessed man, we begin with the wicked, and in Going through it, we go from the wicked to God and then to the blessed. And so this morning, what I want us to see is a problem that we don't just experience in things like drugs that are ravaging our streets, but people who give in to sin do not have an appropriate view of God's love and choose the fleeting delight of sin instead of the immeasurable delight found in God. And so we'll see this psalm then broken up into two distinct parts, the wicked, verses 1 through 4, and then learning about God and verses 5 through 12. And there's a reason why David does this. It paints such a stark contrast. But let us dive in then and and start picking apart this beautiful psalm that the Lord has given us. So David, very, in the very beginning in verse 1, inspired by the Spirit, begins with a very pointed insight. Sin speaks to the wicked's heart. This is talking about temptation to sin. And it's so easily pointed to those who we think are wicked, right? We, when even thinking about uh, this fentanyl pandemic, we think, oh yeah, those people are bad. Those people who use drugs, they are bad. But the reality, friend, is it's not just those people. And we want to pray for this pe- those people, by the way. This is not a sermon bashing on people who are struggling with sin. We want to help them and we'll get there. But, but it is not just thinking about those people, those other people who are wicked. It becomes so Uh, much more practical when we switch this out and think about how sin speaks to our heart instead of just the sinner's heart. This conception of sin, our desire for something that is against the law of God, and it speaks to our wicked heart to do it. This is so very descriptive in this first verse about sin speaking deep into our heart. And maybe you have experienced this. Or, or it's not just these other people, but it's in our heart where we feel that temptation when no one's around and we can hear that, that small whisper in our heart to go and to transgress the law of God. And that's interesting because the word is transgression used in your very first verse there. And it reminds us of what is this sin that is happening. We're going over the 1689 confession in Sunday school. And attached to that is the Baptist confession. And it actually answers this question. What is sin? And sin is any want or conformity unto or transgression against the law of God. So we see this transgression that is speaking to the heart of the wicked, that is speaking to you and me, 
is actually trying to break the law of God. It is wanting to do what is not found in the word of God. So as it now becomes this sin that we see in the very first part of the very first verse, it kind of begins to be a snowball effect or a progression of sin. Whereas all of us will be tempted to sin, it is those who have no fear of God before their eyes who will gladly continue down the path of sinfulness. Okay, So we see that at the second part of this verse, and we understand the fear of God as a holy reverence for God, right? Wanting to be obedient to God, and yes, being afraid of the God of the universe, So when there is no reverence or respect for the God who created all things or no being afraid of what the consequences for sin are, it's because they are in fact giving themselves over to sin and believe that there will be no consequences for it. That's what we see in verse 2. The sinner, the wicked, actually flatters himself, lying to himself. I love that word, flattery. Right? It's, you can think of it maybe as when uh, someone's giving a compliment, and you've seen when flattery happens, maybe at work, when someone's really laying it on the boss, oh, you are just the best, and you're like, really? I think you might be going a little bit overboard. And that is the word that's being used here. It's a deceitfulness. It's trying to encourage something in deceitfulness. And what I love is that the Hebrew actually means to smooth out a path. When we think of flattery, it's trying to smooth out a path. He is making his path smooth to continue sin, thinking his sin cannot be found out or condemned by others. Is this starting to feel personal yet? When you think of your own sin, the secret sin that you hold on to that you don't talk about in your care groups or, or in your uh, encouragement with other people that you keep to yourself. You try to smooth out that path. You try to make it so easy for you to continue along the path of wickedness and that is giving over to this sin. So a man who has let his temptation of sin birth into actual committing of sin and then begins to justify his sin now begins to show what it looks like for a heart to be ruled by sin. His actions are not only secretly sinful, but now become outright sinful. The snowball continues to roll when we see that out of his mouth are nothing but trouble and deceit. He has ceased ceased to act wisely and do good. It is now an outward working of his sinfulness. And then finally, it comes to a point where the wicked person begins to meditate on sin rather than the words of God. He does not reject evil and he chooses that path or that way that is not good. The wicked snowball reaches its fever pitch Temptation has progressed into the path of wickedness. The sinner has given himself over to voluntary slavery of sin. That's what we read when he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. He has given himself over to voluntary slavery. 
If you go to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, this is a good parallel passage for what we're studying. And although I'd love to read it to you in length, I'm going to hit some highlights, and hopefully this week in care groups we can go back into more depth over it. But I want you to see um, some things that should compare to what we just read. So here are a couple of highlights of this wicked person. Verse 18, they suppress the truth. Verse 20, they are without excuse for they clearly see the attributes of God on display. They knew God but did not honor him as God and became futile in thinking and their hearts were darkened, verse 21. Their God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, dishonorable passions, debased mind. And finally, in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is that wicked progression that sinful progression when we are not checking sin. And as we learned this morning about sanctification from Nathaniel, if we are not in Christ, all of this is happening, all of this sinful progression is happening, and there's nothing that can check it. But maybe some of you this, this week have been struggling with this progression of sin, whatever your sin may be whether it be from the hardcore drug user to the one that is looking at websites he has no business looking at. Maybe it's from the hardcore drug user to the disobedient child. Whatever the case may be, whatever the spectrum may be, if we don't check it, we are putting ourselves into the path of wickedness. I think James Hamilton, who is a professor and also a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, says it really well when he says, evil will be rejected by those who look not at what it offers, but at what it costs and what it takes away. I think this is a paradigm shift for us because sometimes we think if I follow God's law, I'm missing out on all the fun. Or I'm missing out on the ability to have this joy and this delight, maybe with hanging out with my friends or really diving into that delicious sin that is lusting in my heart. But Hamilton helps us when he says, it's not what we're going to gain from this sin, but at what it costs us if we give in to it and what it takes away. See, the reality is the wicked are tempted by things that are temporal with fleeting satisfaction and delight. But God gives his steadfast love, which is eternal and has abundant delight. And that's what we're going to see as we move from verses 1 through 4 into verses 5 through 12, which is a study of the steadfast love of God. You'll see that David makes a hard shift from the path of wickedness and sin, which is a self-worship, and idolatry to something worthy of worship, worthy of our satisfaction and delight, namely Yahweh. So when we read in verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, we see that in all caps, and as we've been going through the Psalms, we are reminded again and again that this is the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. And so we're thinking in terms of covenant Right now, we're thinking in terms of that and how that love that God gives us is a covenantal love. That is this 
steadfast love. And so he describes David, inspired by the Spirit, describes a few attributes of God within the next verses that we're going to go over. But he, re- but he focuses on the repetition of steadfast love as the overarching attribute, and so will we. Now, before you want to come after me and be like, don't just focus on God is love, you're right. God is as much love as he is wrath, right? God is as much love as he is righteousness, right? It's not that I'm trying to parse out which attribute of God is better, but in Psalm 36, we see an overarching attribute that is repeated, and that is the steadfast love of God. And so that is where we will focus on for the remainder of our time this morning. But before we do, it is, in, it is important to remember what the steadfast love is. We need to understand this, and it's good that we see steadfast love and O Lord, because O Lord being the covenantal name of God helps us understand that steadfast love is the covenantal love of God. We get this from the Hebrew word hesed, And that means covenantal love. And so when we think of covenant, right, specifically in David's context, 2 Samuel 7, write that down, right? That's where the covenant of God is given to David. It is this unconditional covenant that God is coming to David saying, you will forever have someone on the throne. And we see this unconditional love of God given to us in Christ Jesus. But more of that later as we continue to study. So I'm going to lay out then three categories of covenantal love of God. As we're studying, we're going to see three big categories that we can understand what this covenantal love of God is. And it will help us see more clearly the contrast that David is giving us between verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 12, if we understand well this covenantal love of God. So number one. The covenantal love of God or steadfast love of God is immeasurable. The covenantal love of God is immeasurable. Listen to what, uh, how David begins to describe this love of God. It extends to the heavens, to the clouds, as impregnable as the mountains and as deep as the oceans. This is the love of God. Now, I know he's talking about faithfulness and righteousness and justice, and I'll unpack that, but we cannot fathom the steadfast love of God. It is impossible for us to completely understand this love that God freely gives us. And so I want you immediately to contrast this with the cheap lust that sin always offers you. It is incomparable. It is an inch deep and a mile wide versus the oceans, the depths of the oceans that is the love of God. We see here that God is faithful even when we are not. And He is faithful to what? What is God faithful to? His covenantal love. And who is His covenantal love with? His covenantal love is his commitment to his people for his name's sake. So when we are thinking about steadfast love as in compared to sin, we see God who is always faithful to love you, 
always faithful to call you back because it's for His name's sake that He does so. As we are understanding the immeasurability of God's steadfast love, we move to God's righteousness. God's righteousness enables what? Well, first of all, what is God's righteousness? Right? Righteousness is adherence to the law to the moral law, to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. It is what God has given us. It's what lasts through all eternity. It was even in the garden, and it is now. We see that God's righteousness is that law that we get to understand, that God has given to us. What a gift. And then, in God's righteousness, He is enabled the right administration of His justice or His judgments on his people's behalfs, stemming from his promise of what? His steadfast covenantal love. So when we think of this righteous administration of judgment, we see that both in the fact that if we are in Christ, the wicked are, are going to receive that righteous judgment, not those in Christ. That doesn't mean that God's steadfast love doesn't mean that he won't disciple those or discipline those that are within that love. It's not like we get this free pass. Like again, um, Nathaniel was telling us this morning, it's not like, okay, I was saved, now I can live however I want. No, God's going to discipline us. He's going to prune us. He's going to make us into that image. And part of that is this right administration of his justice within his covenantal love. We see that when we read, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. We have that song playing in our heads, maybe. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Oh, anyways, that's a good one. That was ringing in my head this week and Courtney's head as we were talking about this. Your judgments are like the deep, the great deep. And then we get the best part. The best part, again, of this love that's almost impossible for us to conceive, and logically we always get, start bumping up against it somehow, but in this love, in this steadfast, faithful, righteous, just love, God saves us. Oh, the beauty that we read in verse 6. Man and beast, you save, oh Yahweh. We see that it is God's steadfast love that will save us. Not our works, not our ability to attain something, but it is God who saves by His just rule according to His righteousness and thankful uh, that He is always faithful that committed all from before the foundations of the world that He would save those that He has called. Oh, the beauty. And that is why we can say unabashedly that the steadfast love, that the covenantal love of God, number two, is precious. It's so very precious. Now, I thought of using Golem uh, from the Lord of the Rings as an example here uh, when we're thinking about, even in the beginning, when I, when I chose to do fentanyl instead of Golem. Right, But I want you to think because sometimes we think precious and we think that, right? As he's cupping the ring or, uh, spoiler alert, I think you've seen or read, I hope. If not, you'll forget after time. But really what we see 
is this, again, contrast of preciousness. Because Golem, at one point, was, I don't know, either a man or an elf. You can come at me later. I know Nathaniel will know very clearly. But he, he is either man or elf, right, in the beginning. And then he becomes so distorted as he, as he wants to hang on to this ring above all other things. His life becomes so enraptured in this ring that he, he cloisters himself. He goes by himself. He's in the dark. He's always wanting the precious. And the reality is, is that's what we do with our sin. That's what we do with our sin and God saying, my love is so much more precious. David moves from the immensity of God, from the immense to the intimate and personal, the preciousness of God. I want you to see the preciousness of God in three ways this morning. Number one is refuge. The intimate reality of God's steadfast love is that it provides refuge, hear me, for those who believe. This isn't like a free universalism ticket here that everybody goes to heaven. No, it makes clear for those that believe. Refuge are for those that God has chosen and who can believe in Him. And David uses this multiple times throughout the Psalms. Speaking of taking refuge under God's wings, this beautiful imagery of God really caring for us. Christ even called, says, oh Jerusalem, that you would have heard the prophets, right? I, I was wanting to gather you like a hen under my wings, but no, Jerusalem killed the prophets. But God offers us refuge, and refuge is realizing that God is your sanctuary and will never leave you or forsake you. Sin will leave you and forsake you at the first moment it can. You think it's your friend. You think this secret sin is your refuge. I can go to this and it will always be for, for me. It'll always be there for me. And what it's doing, it's, it's hollowing out your soul. It is slowly tricking you that it is a refuge it's like a shack in the middle of a tornado that's calling you in. Or better yet, it's like a, a um, I'm, I'm trying to helpfully use things about Texas that I can, I can help you with, right? Uh, a tornado shelter that you run into, but it's actually a grave. That's what it is. It locks you in and keeps you there for your destruction. And now just think of the words of Christ, come to me who all... All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. That is refuge. Number two, under the steadfast or covenantal love and why it's so precious, is because it is a delight. Now, we read that, they feast on the abundance of your house. You will give them drink from the river of your delights. God's steadfast love provides an abundance of delight and satisfaction. Where sin always leaves you wishing for more, right? It's the promise that never delivers. It's always leaving you hollow and wishing for more, but God gives a soul-satisfying delight that can never be taken away. In fact, the word delight in Hebrew, oh man, this is so good. This was so good this week as I was studying it and I came upon it. It was so exciting. The word that you read when they say drink from the river of delights is actually the word in Hebrew that's used for Eden. It's actually used 
for the word that describes the Garden of Eden. Is there any place you can picture besides heaven that was full of delight and satisfaction? I can't. I, I hope you can't either. I hope it's Eden and as we look towards the new Eden, as we look towards heaven, as we think then about this hollow and fake satisfaction that sin wants us to, to grasp, wants us to go for, and it's only God who can bring you delight. The perfect garden of abundance is the type of delight that God can only bring, where sin flatters itself. And pretending it can bring you satisfaction, it will never follow through. And then number three, the covenantal love of God, the steadfast love of God is so precious because it brings life and light. God does not just bring us delight and satisfaction, but He is the fountain of life. He is the spring of life. God is assay which comes from the doctrine of aseity, which means that God exists of himself. All you philosophy nerds are like, yes, finally, ontology, right? This is that idea that there was, God was never created and there was never a time in which he did not exist. And from him flows all life. He is the immovable. He is the one that brings action to everything else. God is the giver of all life. Even eternal life. This is steadfast love, friends, that he chose us even from before the foundations of the earth. In love. Ephesians 1, 5. We see actually in John chapter 4, I never turned directly to it. That was awesome. Went right there. In John chapter 4, starting in verse 14, we see Christ picking up this idea, right? We always want to see how Scripture is interpreting Scripture. We're always looking at that arc of redemptive history. And this is what Christ says to the woman at the well, right, who's coming for water. Christ says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, pointing to the well water, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God gives us in his steadfast love, he gives us life. But not only life, God gives us light. In a paper that C.S. Lewis was asked to present to the Oxford Socratic Society came one of his most famous quotes. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. We see this in Psalm 36. In your light do we see light. In God's light, we see all light. So then, let's think about light. We're going to take a very quick, non-exhaustive look at light throughout the scriptures, okay? So follow me. Genesis 1. I'm going to go in rapid succession. So if you can't catch up, don't worry. 
you know the verses, and maybe it's going to take me a really long time. All right, Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness, jumping a gigantic jump to Psalm 19, going to the psalm, Psalm 19 being a psalm about the Word of God. Um, we've preached on that already. You can go back and listen to it again if this piques your interest. Starting in verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, the sun now, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuits to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. There's nothing hidden from the light that goes out. Isaiah chapter 60 I like that I'm hearing those Bibles moving. Good job. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Okay, now moving into the New Testament. John, you know we had to go to John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, do you think that the inspiration of Scripture and leading John to write what John wrote maybe was influenced by Psalm 36? Maybe? Maybe the same eternal author, the Holy Spirit, had some of the same things being brought up here that John was bringing up in John 1? I don't know for certain but it seems really interesting to me. And then finally, let's go to John 8, verse 12, to just cap the beauty of this. We could go to Revelation after this, but I'll save some time here. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In fact, it is by God's light, the light of the world, the Christ, that we understand all things. If not for the Son, we would allow ourselves to believe the lies of Satan and flatter ourselves that sin is more delightful than God. But the light exposes our sin. And by Christ, we are forgiven and realize the cheapness of sin. Friends, this is clearly a way for us to hear the gospel this morning. There is one fountain of life. There is one giver of life and light, and that is only found in the steadfast love of God and the culmination of redemptive history in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. 
If you are not in him this morning, I pray that you seek forgiveness of your sins and put your faith in Christ and leave the path of the wicked. But we're not done. We continue to the third aspect of the steadfast covenantal love of God, and that is the fact that it continues. We see this in verses 10 through 12 as David is proclaiming, or actually at this point he is praying, um, you can make an argument that he was always praying, but that he's praying in verses 10 through 12 for the continued steadfast love of God for those who know God and his righteousness for the upright of heart. Now we see this in correlation with what we've already read, that this steadfast love of God saves And we see David in a prayer of obvious adoration of the fountain of life and for choosing him as a member of his covenantal love. Friends, I wonder how many times in our prayers does it focus around the beauty of God's covenantal saving love of our own soul. I know in my prayers with my children at night, it can come really close to help these people feel better, help this happen, Give us a good night's rest, no bad dreams. Those are all good things, and we want those things to be talked about a lot. But I wonder how much we are praying about God's beautiful, steadfast love that saved us from the depths of hell. He continues in this prayer with this idea of continued, steadfast love of God. He actually, we see the exclamation point. It's it's an imperative to God. God doesn't need to be commanded because God is God, but this is just helping us see the, the need that our life is in desperate need of the continued steadfast love of God. And he continues to let not arrogance, right? This idea of arrogance, the pride, the flattery of iniquity speak to David's heart or, or really our hearts nor the evil of the wicked drive them away from the fountain of life. May we not become arrogant or given over to sin so that we turn to the wicked path. More on that in our conclusion. So we see a prayer for personal faithfulness amidst God's covenantal faithfulness. And then finally, we see the outcome. We see the outcome for the wicked. The evildoer's end is fallen and thrust through. This is like being jabbed through, guys, with a sword or a javelin. They are, they are destroyed, conquered, unable to get back up. This is the reminder that sin costs you everything. Sin is not about what we gain, but about what we lose. It reminds me of Lazarus and the rich man. As the rich man lay in hell and he looks up at him and he wants to then get past this divide and he comes to the stark realization that he can't go from there to where uh, the, the bosom of Abraham is, right, is what we read. He can't go up to heaven. He can't uh, somehow work his way up through purgatory to get back to heaven. No, it's clear. It's distinct. He is in hell, never again able to get back up. So as we come to a conclusion then, I want us to see these distinct paths. The wicked's way begins with temptation, which speaks to the heart or lures the heart to an ungodly desire, 
which when give birth to sin, which given birth to sin, becomes hidden in their heart, and then the wicked gives himself over to the voluntary slavery, which progresses into the path of the wicked, which leads to the destruction from which no one can rise. And friends, I want to be really clear with you this morning. If you're outside of Christ, that's your path. But praise God, the fountain of life. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, there is hope. There is hope for those on the wicked path. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, submit to him as your Lord and Savior of your soul. And repent of your sins. But for those of us who have drank from the river of delights, that we've drank from the fountain of life, and by His light we see all light as we walk in the path of God, how do we keep ourselves from sin? We talked about sanctification this morning, but I want to I go to a couple of different places here. I want us to think of one is that we would seek our delight and satisfaction in the immeasurable God, the one whose faithfulness is to the clouds, the ones whose righteousness is impregnable like the mountains, the ones whose judgments are inexhaustible like the depths of the ocean, the one who saved your soul. Oh, the immensity of God. Oh, that the immensity of God would choke out the hollow, life-draining, soul slavery that is sin. Number two, would you hate sin? Look at verses one through four. The wicked does not reject it, but he accepts it as good. If you are not hating sin, you are accepting it as a good path to walk down. Now, I want to give you some solace because I think that we can get caught up in the I'm a believer, but I sin. And we saw that this morning. And even Ted helped us understand that sometimes our ups and our downs are very much noticeable. They can be high highs and low lows. So I think someone who can help us here, who has been a helpful guide to us through the Psalter already, is Augustine. It's a long quote. Hang in there, but we're almost done. If we cannot be free... From wickedness, at least let us hate it. When we have begun to hate it, you are unlikely to be tricked into committing a wicked act by any stealthy temptation. Hate sin and iniquity, 
so that you may unite yourself to God who will hate it with you. Already you are at one with God's law in your mind, for in your mind you are a servant of God's law. If in your carnal nature you are still enslaved to the law of sin because of the pleasures of the flesh are still powerful in you, remember that they will be there no longer when your fight is over. To be free from the need to fight, to enjoy the true and everlasting peace, and I'll just add in there really quick, the, the delights of Eden. Back to the quote. This is something quite different from fighting and winning. Different from fighting and being vanquished. Different yet again from declining even to fight and being carried off as a prisoner. For there certainly are some who do not put up a fight. Like this one of whom the psalm says, he did not hate wickedness. For how could he have been fighting against something for which he felt no hatred? Such a person is dragged away by wickedness without even resisting. There are others who begin to fight, but because they rashly rely on their own strength and God wants to prove to them that it is He who wins the victory if we enlist under His leadership, they are worsted in battle. They have apparently begun to hold fast to righteousness, but they become proud and consequently they are knocked out. People like this fight but are overcome. Who is it who fights and is not overcome? The one who says, I am aware of a different law in my members that opposes the law of my mind. Look at this fighter. He does not presume on his own strength. And that is why he will be the victor. What does the next line say? Who will deliver me from this death-ridden body, wretch that I am? Only the grace of God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He relies on the one who has commanded him to fight. And he defeats the enemy because he is helped by his commander. Friends, let me end this morning. As we have looked to the different paths, as we have looked to the path of the wicked and that sin that wants to progress in your heart and that you think is okay, but as it continues to progress, you realize the hollowness and where David has said in other places, it's like tentacles that entangle you and pull you down. It's like quicksand. You will perish. You will fall. But in the path of God, in His steadfast love, we are forgiven of our sin. We are forgiven of our many stumbles. And although we continue to stumble into sin, we must remember that it's not our steadfast love, but it is His steadfast covenantal love of God, which is always faithful to His promise for His name's sake. Great is His faithfulness. Great is His faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. All we have needed, His hand has provided. Great is His faithfulness, Lord, unto you. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all yours with 10,000 beside. Let us pray. Oh God, we are in desperate need of your steadfast love. Would you continue your steadfast love in our hearts as we battle sin and look to be the fighter that relies on you as our commander, as our savior. May you help us thrust sin through. May you help us not be tempted by the flattery 
May you help us not be tempted by the hollow deceit. May you help us not be tempted by a smoothing out of our own sin to pretend like it's okay. But may you help us hate sin. Would you hate it with us like we know you do? And make us rely on the cross of Christ, which is the epitome of steadfast love. Oh God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his salvation. May you continue this love in our hearts to the day where we see you in eternity. And we pray this in the precious name, in the immeasurable name, and in the continued name of Christ our Lord. Amen.